Welcome, welcome, guys. We are back for another episode of The Lock-In, sponsored by Unibet Poker. I'm David Lavin. I am joined, as usual, by, I want to say now, one, two, three, five-time book author, Dara O'Carney. Dara, we are going to be talking today about your new book uh, out any day now, maybe even out today, later today, perhaps. Uh, I have been asked to ask you, what is this book called? Um, I believe it's actually a mystery because it's about mystery bounties. So um, I'm, I'm I'm praying it's not mystery poker strategy. Um, maybe mystery bounties simplified. Strategy poker mystery. I don't know, Barry. Barry, uh, you are joining us this week. Um, obviously, our our, our newsman normally, uh, Dara's co-author. You're the writer of seven poker books, Barry Carter. Congrats to you two on this book. Thank you. It's, um, you know, you sometimes forget the name of your own book uh, when you've written that many of them. But just to confirm, uh, it's Mystery Bounty Poker Strategy. We've, uh, we went on a long mental journey <laughs> and uh, we found that one. So. <laughs> it's just, it's perfect. It's perfect. Yeah. I, can, I, I now know why I wasn't asked. There is no way I would have agreed to wedging poker strategy into yet another of our many book titles. <laughs> well, look, it was a busy enough uh, poker news fortnight, I must say, but I, I want to start with your book. It's sort of, you know, breaking news as we speak. I'm not going to do that thing that Doug does with breaking news. Uh, my first question for both of you, Barry, go first, maybe, is will Mystery Bounties take over poker? Uh, are they already running out of steam or is it a bit of something in between? Uh this is the stupidest thing someone could say during a book launch about the subject, but I think they're running out of steam a little bit. I um, uh, I think they're big novelty live, and people in live poker were craving some sort of version of a PKO tournament that we were all enjoying online. And I think they peaked a little bit too soon. We, we did a little bit too much, and... Th- the proof is for me in the fact that only two operators have offered online mystery bounties so far when you think a lot of them would have jumped at the chance to, to offer them and, and sort of catch on to this craze. So I think they're going to be a permanent part of the the poker circuit, but I think I think they've peaked. Darren, that's an absolutely horrendous blurb for your book. We've hosted and branded <laughs> a couple of live mystery bounties. Your yeah. thoughts on how they will fit into the poker landscape going forward? And, and please, more energy than Barry gave there. <laughs> Yeah, I think, I'm, I'm, I mean, they were the hottest thing to hit live poker when they first appeared in the same couple of years. And maybe operators just got a little bit carried away thinking, let's make everything, every side event a mystery bounty. Um, certainly <clears throat> operators like Stars started putting on two or three mystery bounties per festival. I think the key to them is that they have to be kind of like big special occasions. It's like a birthday party in a sense. Like you can, if you had a birthday party every day, what, what would even be the point? But if you have like a, a big one million guarantee at the WSP and a big one at every EPT and just dispense with the smaller ones. I think that's probably the key going forward. Um, it's uh, also, I do know that Barry mentioned that only two operators have chosen them so far. One of, the, one of those operators, GG, appear to have renamed them as surprise bounties rather than mystery bounties. So I'm I'm wondering if that's just a screw with us. We, we brought out mystery bounty poker strategy. See, I do have the title now, but maybe we're going to have to also put it out in America as surprise bounty poker strategy. 
That's so strange as well. Gigi Bogart not normally afraid of any copyright infringement when they, you know, jump on the name of a tour or a festival or whatever. I'm very surprised they've gone with their own name there. Um, one format that is certainly here to stay is the PKO, the Progressive Knockout. You guys obviously already wrote the book on that one as well. Uh, can you apply a PKO strategy to mystery bounties or are they very different? Dara, go first this time. Uh, there are there are certain commonalities, but es- essentially, what a what, what a mystery or a surprise bounty, which we're, we're going to have to start calling it now as well, is is there a traditional old fashioned knockout tournament where uh, the you know non progressive, in other words, and they had kind of fallen out of favor. So like nobody has ever, as far as I know, bothered to write a book on those. Um, and interesting enough, like if if you were playing those. And you got our our, our new book. Uh, you could you could apply ninety percent of what's in the book to a, a normal non PKO. The the PKO element is uh, significantly different because the bounties get bigger as more and more people get knocked out. Um, uh, to sort of spoiler the book a little, one of one of the big things about uh, mystery bounties is that as the particularly when the big bounties paid out, but as more and more people get eliminated and more bounties are paid out, the the, the bounty element sort of shrinks in value. Um, and that has important strategic implications. That's somewhat offset in uh, PKO is by the fact that the bounties are getting bigger. Although, as anybody who's read PKO Poker Strategy will know, nevertheless, when you get to the final table, it's almost always the case that uh, the, pay, the pay, payouts are much more important than the bounty element at that, at that stage. Yeah, good. We, and Barry, um, any uh, nuggets of your own? Yeah, we we initially thought this was going to be a very short book. We thought, like, you know, five thousand word ebook. Let's charge five dollars for it. You know, knock it out quickly. It ended up being the biggest book we've actually ever written in terms of page number, which I was surprised about. I actually told our formatting guy. Um, make the text bigger because I think this is going to be a short book and then it ended up being (laughs) massive. Um, Dara alluded perhaps to the biggest differences. Um, Even when a big, really, really big mystery bounty is still in play at the late end of a uh, mystery bounty tournament, usually that doesn't dramatically increase uh, your calling ranges in the way that it it does in a PKO. Um, There's more considerations in mystery bounties with things like when to register um some people are considerations about when they're supposed to draw the tickets but that's a that's a non sequitur but people still think they think they do um i think the biggest difference is you have to be much more aware of the actual payout structure of the tournament itself in a mystery bounty uh, some mystery bounties have like a 50-50 payout structure where half the the buying goes to the bounties half to the uh, the normal payouts, some have like a 70-30. We're going to see lots and lots of changes to that. And one of the big things we advocate in the book is pay attention to the payout structure because it dramatically changes the way you should be playing the game. A 50-50 mystery bounty and a 70-30, which is the, the more standard one, that that's what we call it. They play very, very different to each other. That's really good advice. The one thing I've noticed, having read all of your books, is that as time has gone by, you've lent into solver learning a bit more. Obviously, it's like really in both your wheelhouses. This These days, Dara often talks, Barry, about how, you know, you're as good as him these days at setting up the solves and you do most of that stuff, uh, you know, un, um, unhelped by him, if you like. And uh, I was just wondering, like, with this kind of format, is it actually sort of hard to, you know, use solvers 
for this, it just strikes me is that there's probably almost like a lot of shorthand calculation, a lot of like getting your calculator out or maybe creating some gorilla mats that you can work from. It's actually a lot simpler than you would think, um, because as I said, like the, the, the key is to realize that it's just a normal KO tournament and that the bounty on everybody is the average bounty that remains. So, you know, if there's like 50 mystery bounties and they all add up to 50 grand, then you just in the solver, you just give everybody a bounty of 1K because that's your that's your EV if you win the bounty. And, and once you do that, then the solver has no uh, issues at all producing the solves. And I think that's actually why the book ended up being a lot longer, because we we did all the general advice. And then we sort of thought, of, well, what about the specific example? What, you know, there's a big bounty left and there's only a few people or there's a there's a very short stack. How is that going to change things? Or we're one of the middle stacks. Um, and if we lose, we're going to be one of the short stacks. How does that change things? So, so we kind of ran all these scenarios and we found a lot of nuance that we we hadn't really been aware of before and i mean the evolution of the the reason why we've led more into solvers as the books have gone on is that when we started i think barry was kind of a solver skeptic um, and certainly knew pretty much nothing about solvers so like when on strategy on on satellite strategy i just kind of explained all the concepts and i ran all the solves and barry grudgingly put them in but then barry actually got more and more into the solver so as 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 we went through progressive books, we kind of reached the stage where Barry was just as enthusiastic about solvers as I was. And now we re- we've almost reached the stage where he's almost as adept at using solvers as I am. So um, it, it's kind of like just Barry's evolution more than anything else. Yeah, I mean, I'm not as adept as Dara, but I, I will say that one of the odd evolutions that's uh, come from all of this is I, I actually do do freelancing work for two solver companies uh, mm-hmm. now, and um, I probably won't name which ones they are just in case the, uh, their share price goes down. But yeah, I am, I am a proper, <laughs> to, 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 to quote uh, the great Cat Armsby, this is proper nerd shit at this point. So, yeah. <laughs> one final question, uh, just before we get off the topic of mystery bounties, the one aspect of this, and this might end up being a nice little nugget that either of you could answer, is that we often talk about future game as this sort of pushing back idea against ICM maybe like late on. And obviously that's relevant because, you know, the future game of you having more chips and maybe being able to leverage whatever ICM pressure is upon your opponents is always very nice. But there strikes me in these as something much more direct, which is like how many more people do you cover versus how many less people will you cover if you lose being a very direct and important calculation in a format like this? Did that come out? in the workings through of, of various different, you know, end game scenarios you created or, or whatever way you wanted to sort of set it up so you could give hand examples. Yeah. yeah the, the, sorry. Go on. There's, no, there's a whole section towards the end of the book, literally about that. And uh, we even come up with a, uh, a nice little uh, shorthand maths for it, which um, sounds like, it sounds like IBS, but it's IBE. Uh, but I'll let Dara <laughs> go into the maths on that. But um that's a big consideration. I've only actually played one mystery bounty, cashed in it, by the way, two bounties. Um, but uh, as a direct result, I've been playing a lot more PKOs recently, and I've been I've had a really nice run in them for this exact reason. I, I still don't think I'm a particularly great player in these tournaments, but I am very, very aware of the, the dynamics of who covers who and, you know, uh, how to get a small stack all in, how to get a big stack and all that stuff. And uh, that's one of the... Uh, after the you know, the initial maths and the the change in the sort of zeitgeist of how to play in these tournaments. That's probably one of the more, more useful lessons in the book. 
Yeah, the um, we we kind of we knew this was an important concept from the start, and actually the very first content we produced on this kind of toyed around with this idea, which we we ended up calling it IB, which is, uh, I believe, <laughs> immediate bounty equity. That's uh, right. Which is basically how many bounties you can win next hand. So if you cover everybody on your table, and the average bounty is to follow up the example that I used earlier, one thousand, then you cover eight players, you can win eight thousand. Whereas somebody who covers nobody can win nothing, and somebody who covers four players can win four thousand. So that becomes a factor when you know, let's say somebody moves all in, uh, and let's say you can't win their bounty, um, or you can win their bounty, but but it's but it's pretty close. And if you lose, let's say you move from an IBE of five or six down to zero or one, that's actually going to make quite a difference to if it actually may, only moves you from five or six down to four, three or four. So it's an important concept. You're never going to be able to do the maths in game, um, but but it's an important, it's important to just kind of look around the table and say, okay, this is the many chips I have, but if I lose 10,000 chips, those three players will move ahead of me and I won't be able to win their bounty anymore. Um, it's also an important consideration, uh, which Barry touched on earlier, is when to reg, like the the, the one big difference between mystery bounties and all other KOs, be they normal, um, traditional bounty hunters slash scalps um, and RPKOs, is in those formats, you should never late reg because as soon as somebody's knocked out, that's money which has disappeared from the prize pool, which you can no longer win. But that's not true in a mystery bounty. In a mystery bounty, uh, you can, uh, you know, the the bounties won't kick in until, until, until the end of close reg or sometimes at the very start uh sometimes just as later edge closes and that actually makes it very advantageous to later edge them but how advantageous depends on how many people you're going to cut you're likely to cover um which more or less boils down to how many other people are later edging very good now i have to say my mind has spent the entirety of when you spoke there they're just thinking about ibe and what irritable bowel equity would be i guess it would be the equity <laughs> that you would lose if you had the dodgy seafood the night before and you had to keep leaving the table it's um, a big factor in seniors tournaments. <laughs> <laughs> razor sharp, razor sharp, Mr. O'Carty. Okay, so it has been a rather busy week or busy fortnight, I, I think more so um, in the world of poker. Uh, first up, uh, I want to talk about that bloke who played and won the ladies event uh, about 10 days ago, the $250 Seminole Hard Rock Poker Showdown ladies event. Attracted a field of 83 entrants. The tournament was eventually won by... Dave Hughes, a man who took home a little over 5K per state law management, are unable to bar a man from entering a ladies' tournament in Florida. Uh, thanks to Ebony Kenny, we got some video of that event. Uh, needless to say, his victory did not go down particularly well in the poker room, nor on social media afterwards. Barry, your thoughts when you heard this story? Um, yeah, it happens all the time. People sometimes make the uh, claim that they're making a political statement. They're not. Sometimes they uh, try and turn it around into discussion on gender identity. They don't really mean that. Uh, some people cynically sort of enter the tournaments because they think they're going to be softer. My understanding of ladies' events from having spoken to, you know, at least one woman uh, previously is that... That's a is, that, is that totally <laughs> no, in no, your no, life? I, I, a serious <laughs> point. I shouldn't have done that. I have a serious point. I've spoken to a lot of female poker players over the years, and the one commonality that they all share when where ladies' events is concerned is it's just a refreshing social occasion that they don't get to participate in very often. Uh, most 
poker tournaments are men's events de facto because that's the how many that's all the people who are going to be at the table it's rare that women get to talk to women in the different environment talk about different things and really all people like this do is ruin a good time ruin a fun social event that's not to sort of denigrate ladies events to say they're not serious but that is my understanding of what the what the market gets from these events and they just ruin it so uh, over to you two guys to mansplain it a little bit further <laughs> well Dara, turning to you on this one at the wsop the same law does actually exist as well so they make it a 10k event with a 9k discount for women uh, so far that has been sufficient to deter men it's a pity they didn't do it in this case as well i know from our free previous conversations we're both of the opinion that it would be nice in a sense if ladies events didn't exist because we didn't need them because there were like half women in the field and sure it is unusual to segregate women for their own tournaments and yes that comes with its own sort of strange complexities however it remains that they are necessary as an albeit somewhat sledgehammer response bit like what barry said there to the low numbers of women in tournaments and how those tournaments serve as both a uh, less intimidating entry point maybe uh, into the game and a way to encourage female players to create their own social circles as well. I think that's a big part of it too. We, we've seen that with the uh, Queen's Rules uh, at Unibet and various other uh, sort of ladies groups that kind of blend into ladies um, uh, participation at various different festivals uh, run by all the different sites. Are your thoughts when you heard that this guy, Dave Hughes, had played the ladies event? Yeah, I think he just completely and utterly misunderstood the point uh, of ladies events i think it, it, it's it's emblematic or symptomatic of a sort of a broader problem we have in society now where where people have, have sort of like moved to their own, own opposite poles and they only interact with people who have similar views to them so i'm sure when he talked to all his friends and he said it was a stand for gender rights or whatever the hell he his dodgy justification was i'm sure they all were like right on you're absolutely right spot on there was like literally no blowback so he was probably quite surprised when he went there and, the, and and there was blowback the interesting thing for me was how how well ebony kenny handled it because she did sort of like try and talk to him rather than just uh castigate him for having done it try and get a, a under, sense of understanding of like what 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 drove him to this decision um, and that's sadly lacking, not just in the poker world, but in the world in general. It would be nice if the poker world's response to the huge problem we have, which is that live poker is a very intimidating environment for a lot of women, would be to make it less intimidating. But instead, what we've done is we've said, oh, well, we we'll let them have their own tournament and they, they, they can all be nice to each other over there. Um, except we can't even do that because we have state law procured uh, doesn't allow us to ban men so i mean i, I have good personal experience of this because roughly 25 percent of my students at any given time are female and the one thing which distinguishes them as a group is for the most part they do not want to play live poker they only want to play online mm -hmm. Um, and that makes them a lot different from the guys. The guys, even even the online players, all sort of like think, oh, well, I'd like to try my hand at, at live because it's seen as a sort of a more glamorous, you know, nobody cares if you won the big 11 last night, uh, but you go over and you and you do well at an, even at an EPT side event and you get a lot of glory. But that doesn't seem to be a motivator at all for the female demographic. All they're seeing is constant messages about how intimidating live poker is and 
lots of examples of men behaving terribly and just a really obnoxious, toxic atmosphere around like poker. And they're just saying like no interest. And some of them have tried it and have had negative experiences and have no interest in going back. So it's something poker has to find a better way to address than let's just have a few ladies tournaments. Yeah, very well said. I appreciate both your comments weighing in on that one. Um, Moving on, high stakes poker. Uh, I wrote an article on the hot mess uh, that was live high stakes poker. It admittedly uh, hard to take your eyes off dumpster fire. Um, Thanks to Nick Airball Arcos. Uh, Airball is poker's newest uh, character uh, emerging from the Hustler games as something of a loose cannon, firing his shots and uh, playing ultra loose as well. Um, Airball got absolutely hammered during the seven or so hours of high stakes. By hammered, I mean pissed, by drunk. Uh, he was petulant. He was rude. He kept downing glasses of Pinot Noir like he was downing pints and burping. And by the end, he was rowdy and gross. And he actually played one hand against the always classy and a great friend of ours, uh, Jennifer Tilly, who I'm not sure if he even remembered this hand, uh, you know, when he woke up the next morning. I'm not sure he even knew what hand he had at the time. Um, and what basically happened was he unnecessarily tanked about eight minutes long, playing out of just a, a pile of chips in front of him uh, with a too high flush draw, debating whether he should now call the bet he raised and then her re-raise again. It was just a, a nonsense moment and sort of perfectly encapsulated what had gone before. Uh, Barry, did you watch this? No, I watched most of the edited highlights. Uh, you and I discussed this prior to it happening because we were talking about televised poker and the uh, the chip race news segment. Um, it's it's not for me personally. I'm more of the I like watching Justin Bonomo tank for f- ten minutes. This you know thinking about what to do with a blocker in an elite tournament. I'm I'm on the nerdy end of things. I'm not too into the uh, the you know the drama of it all. I, I do have one prevailing view that's come out of all of this and the the Berkey saga and all the all the stuff that we're probably about to talk to about in a minute. And I kind of think that for a lot of poker players, sorry guys, a lot of American poker players, the primary motivation these days is attention and not to win at the game. I think if your people are paying attention to you, you're winning at the game, even if you are hemorrhaging, you know, 400 grand at a time or something. And it's uh, it's not something I'm a fan of, but I do like making my little snidey Twitter jokes about it. So I'm probably part of the problem. <laughs> well, Dara, I know you didn't watch either, but I, I wanted to ask you a question regardless. Uh, I made the point that there is actually room for the more aggro streams, and this one certainly qualified. Um, even before Airball got pissed, the atmosphere was pretty feisty, pretty thorny between Berkey and uh, I think there was about four people he was fending attacks from. Um, Lynn was there. Uh, Polk was there. I think maybe even um, uh, Person was getting in the mix as well. So he was sort of getting it from all sides. But I, I think there is room for different kinds of streams. I just didn't think that high stakes poker was the place for it. I, I guess that show sort of has a special place in the poker community's mind's eye because of the history of it, because of you know the great names that they had all down the years. Not to say that there wasn't feistiness at the table on occasion. Uh, I do remember a, a few more choice uh, battles, uh, even season three, season four of that show. But this really was a different kettle of fish all year. This was really messy and sort of more like the Hustler, uh, Max Payne, Monday kind of stream vibe. Uh, and for that reason, I think the producers made a bit of a, an error here your thoughts yeah i think i'm a little bit less tolerant on this type of content than you are um 
like the 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 um the comparison I always make is that like we don't really want to be wrestling because yeah lots of people watch wrestling but it does lots of people don't actually wrestle. Um, the, the whole point of wrestling is to get people to watch wrestling on TV. The whole point of poker on TV should be to try and get people to come and play poker and create portraying this really hostile atmosphere uh, very much works against that. And, you know, to go back to the ladies issue, like that, that is the one uh, massive failure of poker that a game, which there's absolutely no reason why it shouldn't appeal to as many females as males. It simply doesn't. Uh, 3% is typically, typically the representation number at the, at, at, at the bigger live events. And I think a lot of that has to come down to just this type of content being put out as this is poker. I think a lot of it comes from the fact that the whole culture around the live cash poker scene, particularly in the US, is the game is built around whales like airball. And any any behavior, no matter how reprehensible, is tolerated because you have to placate the whale to keep him in the game. And, you know, there's understandable economic reasons for that. But once that then gets portrayed on TV as this is the way poker should be, I think that's very problematic. You know, we've just come off the World Snooker Championships and snooker famously was the first big sport in this part of the world that attracted a a, a huge female audience. And, you know, you just have to look at the way snooker players uh, uh, behave and the, the general sportsmanship in that game compared to things like wrestling or MMA or a, a, any any of the more male things. And you can kind of understand why snooker has done a much better job of attracting female uh, punters than than um, than other sports. One, 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 on, Barry. One, uh, one aside to that, um, Ronnie O'Sullivan did call me a cunt once. So. <laughs> Do you want to quickly hear the story? Obviously. World Snooker Championships is uh, in Sheffield, where I'm from. And uh, this is 20 years ago because uh, I was in good shape and running. I was running uh, one day, and it was the day after he'd been knocked out of the championship. And some I'm running along, and some yob from a BMW starts screaming something at me. Now, I, I don't know what he said, but I'm pretty certain it was something like, um, and I get, I'm like, oh, God, here we go. Dara must know, like, you people sharing joggers all the time. And I got closer, and I was like, it's Ronnie O'Sullivan. And I was so I was so excited that I ran past him like this, <laughs> like like really 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 pleased with myself. Um, and then um, I told Ken Doherty that story once at a Ladbrokes event, and I said something that upset him, and he said Ronnie was right. So, <laughs> <laughs> anyway, yeah, that's, that, that's interesting because I mean uh, Ronnie's big passion is actually running. Um, he he famous he, he, he's like running, so I wouldn't have thought he was the kind of guy to be hanging out of windows shouting content people. Were no, do you know, do you, if he, he was actually outside Prince Nassim Hamid's gym. He was friends with Prince Nassim Hamid, the great Sheffield boxer. So there you go. He wasn't caught. He wasn't a dog in or anything like that. Yeah, no, I, I think we should probably use that as the uh, as as the blurb for the next book. Yeah, yeah. Just just, <laughs> just Barry Carter is a cunt. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Perfect. Perfect. That, thank you for that adorable segue, Barry. Um, speaking of segue, actually, this is an easy segue from uh, uh, Berkey and Airball at that high stakes thing to their very short lived challenge. Uh, uh, at the time of recording High Stakes Poker, they're in the middle of their High Stakes match. Uh, that match is now over after just 58 hours of play, uh, or as I, I think I termed it, a quarter of a Scaramucci. Um, Airball cried uncle after being taken for a cool million by Berkey. Dara, this one reeked of cloud chasing, uh, and I guess Airball got a, a quick and expensive lesson. Was the uh, was this a case of uh, talk about and find out? 
Sorry, repeat that. You, you blocked out on my end for a, sight for a minute. Was, was this a case of uh, fuck about and find out from Airball, who obviously got a, a short chart drift uh, versus yeah. Berkey there taken for a million? Yeah, I, I, I mean, this is, I, I mean, this is, you know, Wales do tend to think they're good at poker and they have all <laughs> sorts of mad theories about like, and it's usually related to characteristics rather than, you know, personal characteristics and traits rather than any real poker knowledge it's like well i got more balls than this other guy or um i got more money than him or and 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 they think that kind of bluster will get them by and they they rarely don't get a, a, as rude an awakening as uh nick has got the problem with heads up is it's is, is it's just unforgiving you're playing every hand and if the other guy is better than you he's gonna win um it, providing the sample size is big enough uh and I think that's quite bad. Now I now I do know at least one of Nick's uh, friends was was advising caution and saying, "I'm pretty sure you're going to lose this, and you're going to lose it fairly heavily. You are playing a professional player. He might not be the best player in the world, and uh, but he's he, but he is a professional player, and you're not. Um, but the whole appeal of poker kind of is that people think they have a chance, and they and and they do have a chance in certain formats, just not heads yeah. up. And that's one of the reasons why heads up disappeared online because. The better players have too big an edge. Uh, they will always win, and the and the the weaker players will just lose their money quickly, um, which is obviously not what the sites want. Yeah, well said. Uh, over to you now, Barry. On the the flip side of this one, to give Airball, who I know I'm being very critical of in in this uh, episode, he did release a very magnanimous statement there uh, a couple of days ago. He said uh, in his tweet, uh, there was a lot of shit talking. Most of it for fun and to add excitement to the match. But in the end, I have to give credit where credit is due. He played well and he played better than I expected he would. He won fair and square and he deserves to celebrate his win. I want to apologize for the comments I made about Matt being a scammer and the negative comments I made about his business. That was out of line and I regret making those comments. What did you make of that statement, which is worth noting actually Matt Berkey himself appreciated and said that it was actually reflective of well, he thought was a fundamental decency uh, he had seen in airball on several occasions, despite the fact that it was always prickly between the two. Yeah, it's a lot of these heads-up grudge matches, these Twitter feuds and so on and so forth. They do tend to simper down a little bit when the two people are in a room together a lot of the time. It's, it's very easy to call each other names when you're online, but when you're actually forced to be around each other for a long time, you, you're you not going to be as aggressive with each other. Um, if he ever wants to call me a scammer and give me a million dollars, he's more than welcome. <laughs> well, over to, uh, I suppose, something which is sort of taking over a little bit the, the, the Twitter space. Uh, on the next show, we actually have what I think is an excellent piece on poker beefs with Brent Harrington. Do check that one out. That was actually recorded before a lot of the current blow up. So I think it was a particularly prescient segment for us to record. Um, I don't want to get into all the different interactions and fights. There's almost too many to, to do that, uh, that have been going down. But I do want to zoom in on one and maybe what's kind of leapt off that one. Um, Will Jaffe Twitter space reignited a null feud between Doug Polk and Charlie Carroll, but rather than it playing out on YouTube via videos or, you know, Twitter via snarky comments. The two actually spoke to one another in the virtual town hall debate space that spaces on Twitter provide. 
Uh, Matt Berkey also chimed in on that one. And the end result was actually an apology from Doug to Charlie for his lack of empathy when talking about or making content around Charlie's statement that the best way to prevent child molesters is to have empathy for the child molester, no doubt a, a charged subject and a controversial opinion of Charlie's. That was poorly articulated, must be said. Uh, and Charlie admitted so uh, a tweet five years ago. Um, I don't want to go into all the back and forth on this one. I think probably people following this story are aware of it anyway. Um, but it was interesting to see how Charlie successfully communicated his upset in this forum um, and also how it provoked others to go on the attack against Doug. This sort of leaps off your point there, Barry, about how, you know, when you're in a room with somebody, it's it's harder not to just see them as a human being uh, in, in a very basic way. And I suppose maybe these Twitter spaces, you know, yes, OK, you're not there in the same room, but you're sort of virtually there together having a conversation, which does seem like a, mu- a much healthier way to go about things. But are your thoughts on poker's newest obsession with Twitter spaces and what could be achieved in this format? Um, yeah, I must admit, I'm I'm fascinated by them. But at the same time, I feel a little bit um, left out of them, in part because they always seem to happen just as I'm, you know, by the time I get out of bed and uh, everything's done, they're just talking to Pete from Nebraska about one free game that he was playing in or, or something like that. Um, that was a brilliant, that was a brilliant uh, insight from Pete from Nebraska. So, uh, you know. Uh, not to go off on a tangent, but but the whole Twitter space things, it feels like poker's about 18 months late for the Twitter space thing. We feel a bit unhip for not being into them sooner. But and now everybody seems to be hosting, like Deeb started hosting them and everyone's tweeting, should I host a Twitter space? And I I think we're all just addicted to Twitter itself. And then I guess the Twitter space is like experiencing twitter in hd or something like that you actually get mainlining to, twitter <laughs> mainlining twitter you actually get to see them call each other a cunt instead of tweeting <laughs> at it. so um i i i think the obsession will die down like mystery bounty tournaments obviously um look out for be- 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 twitter swiss poker strategy twitter spike you beat me to it <laughs> um yeah I, I actually think people are just addicted to twitter itself so the twitter space is a natural um, enhancement of that. Mm. Well, a, a Jamie Kersetter tweet from today read, new rule is anytime I'm listening to a fucking idiotic Twitter space, I'm also going to be working out. I refuse to rot my brain and my body at the same time. Just the brain is fine though. Uh, Dara, are these pseudo radio phone-in shows going to rot our brains? And like Barry said there, are we just going to sort of get sick of them pretty quickly? Yeah, it seems like reality radio is a particularly bad concept um, without too much legs. You never know, though. I mean, podcasts were the surprise hit, uh, the content hit of the last 10 years on the Internet. Um, People do like the audio. So there's something about audio which is just much more intimate, I think. Um, And and maybe that's part of the appeal. I mean, I do remember Twitter had a brief phase where where you were able to go live as well. Um, I can't even remember what it was called now. That's how how quickly that particular... Periscope. Periscope. Was peri- oh yeah, yeah. I periscope, remember. Yeah. I, I vaguely remember doing one periscope. <laughs> yeah, I do too. I have. I've, I've yet to listen to a Twitter space, much less contribute to one. Um, they just seem like horrible, cheap, low rent reality podcasts to me. In a sense, um, you know, no real preparation. But people do like live content, and you know, people are incre- are incredibly bored and have lots of lots and lots of time to fill. Um, but I think the, there, there is a broader point as well about, about all of these beefs. And I think what's kind of happening is that the sort of inner world of poker, if you want to call it that, the Twitterati, 
about 100 people who live on Twitter and whose main... Um, I know, that, come on, Derek, it can't be that many. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe it's only 50. His main sense of self-worth comes from how well-regarded they are by other people in the Twitterati. Uh, they just seem to have lost their minds now and they just think that they're <laughs> the world uh, and that everybody's interested in them. And, and like they, re- they really aren't. I mean... Uh, go into your next live poker event and ask them about Twitter spaces and just see how many blank faces you're going to get. Um, it's really just sort of the in-circle thinks that this is the big thing right now. Um, pre- pretty sure this is going to go the way of Periscope and NFTs. Yeah, I mean, uh, not not to be a stats nerd on all, all this, but, you know, like a, a YouTube video in poker, like on Doug Polk's channel, for example, might get 300,000 views. Uh, a podcast might get... 15,000, 20,000 downloads. I, I sometimes have seen Twitter spaces where it, it'll be Berkey, Polk, Negranu, Carol, you know, all the main players, 312 people. Yeah, It's not as big as people make out. I think it's the aftermath, actually. I think if somebody says something stupid and they clip it and stick it on YouTube, that's when it that's when it goes viral. But the, the space itself is very intimate. You Probably probably half the people know each other on, on the thing. So, yeah, yeah. Yeah, my own observation is how it's just making it very uh, difficult to keep up with the news as uh, someone who tries to uh, curate the topical nature of this show and then obviously put the the other show together too with Dara and then write an article or maybe even sometimes two articles a week. It's just very hard to keep. It seems like a bit like what you said, how we're getting, you know, Twitter on acid or something. It feels like it's all happening too fast. We're getting all the news and all the developments really quickly, kind of like a uh, a TV show that's rushing to its finale. And, and, and yeah, I, I don't quite know um, at what point we get sick of it or tired of it. I, I almost feel sick and tired of it already. And I think I've listened to about four spaces but uh, but we'll have to see. Obviously, they're, they're they are providing entertainment for some people, and they are providing a sort of a a, a weird, almost like poker therapy. Because you know, maybe just maybe on a couple of occasions so far, there has been sort of meaningful discourse too. Uh, one of the people who sort of leaped off the Twitter space that everyone was talking about last week was Phil Galfond, who wrote a lengthy piece entitled "The Elephant in the Poker Room," uh, in which he deemed to be a, a, a bullying approach by Doug. And he sort of uh, suggested that there was a shift in the Overton window when it came to this community and our tolerance of bullying. Uh, Barry, I know you read this newsletter or article, whatever we call it. Uh, what did you think of Phil's comments? Um, yeah, I, I largely ag- agreed. Um, Phil articulated what I've always felt about Doug, which is that there he seems to go over a line beyond satire uh, and towards reputational destruction of many of his targets. Uh, Doug has since uh, come out and made, I think, a pretty fair defense of himself, um, uh, rebu- revoked some of the arguments that Galfan had said. But I, I must admit that I did agree with that's how that's how I always viewed Doug. Um, I but I'd be lying. I said I didn't laugh at every single one of Polk's videos. Um, <laughs> like, for example, I, I don't think he was fair to Berkey at all uh, throughout the entire thing. And I think Berkey is almost a hero for the way that he conducted himself for most of this thing that's happening. But that Berkey video was so funny that he did. It was ridiculous. So I do think Polk is a bit of a bully. Uh, but at the same time, I kind of think most of us are culpable in this because he didn't get 
a million views per video from nowhere. We were all enjoying this stuff. So, yeah, it's uh, it's a tricky one. We have to look in the mirror a little bit as well. But, uh, yeah, kind of agree with Mr. Galfand. Yeah, Dara, we had an interesting conversation sort of as this was all happening a few days ago. And, and I know I'm probably in danger of being seen as someone who's like pro-bullying when I say what I'm about to say. <laughs> but I, I almost wanted to make the case for how you know, th- there's a line where that's satire and you can cross that line, as Barry very eloquently just said. And then there's a line of just making good criticisms about something that is wrong or something that you perceive to be unfair or at least, or even just an opinion you have on something that you really want to strongly voice. And you're completely entitled to do that. And then there's probably a line there as well where you can cross over into bullying. And I feel like Doug has crossed that line in the way that Barry described and in the other way too on occasion. But actually, I think an awful lot of the time he didn't and he managed to say the right side of satire and he managed to stay the right side of criticism of a person or a situation going on in the poker world. And I think there's a, a sense where maybe, um, you know, what's happening right now, quite rightfully so, to maybe check him a little bit, is it, it's clouding the overall perspective of like how much he was a value or is still a value in the poker community as someone who can get things changed, who can uh, speak truth to power, argue. I think the other thing is that like for a lot of Doug's career, he wasn't the Doug Polk we know now. He was the Doug Polk on the way up, who was often punching up. Now, the disappointing thing is when we see him punching down these days, I think on occasion, and I don't like to see that either. I don't think there's as much humor ever in that. But I do think that there's sort of like, hmm, how do I put this without getting canceled? Um, a, a, positive side to a bullying nature sometimes okay well uh um yeah i mean the bullying obviously is never a good thing but the problem is we can't really agree on what bullying is uh you know you we're now creating an atmosphere where almost every as soon as anybody launches any criticism somebody they're immediately accused of bullying and it's what 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 it can't become is it can't become a way of just stifling all criticism and negative comment about anybody. We have to be able as a community to have disagreements to say we don't uh, approve of certain things um, without being accused of bullying. Um, for me, the key always is is whether you're punching up or punching down. I mean, the poker world is so ridiculous that when we had our famous argument with Daniel Negreanu several years ago now, we got accused of bullying. I mean, the idea that the two of us could somehow bully Negreanu, the biggest figure in poker, is is, is just nonsensical. Um, but but there is this conflation of any sort of criticism. Oh, that's bullying, um, and uh, you know that's not going to serve the poker community well. Uh, we need to be able to out scammers. We need to be able to out all sorts of reprehensible behaviour. We need to be able to discuss, and you know, maybe we'll change our mind. Uh, that's the one positive thing that seems to be coming out of um, the recent tete-a-tetes is that, that there is a bit of movement on both sides. We have to be able to talk to each other, but we have to be able to do it in forthright terms where we're not accused of bullying. Um, you know, I often say the reason why our relationship has worked so well is that we can literally say anything to each other and the other guy won't go, oh, you're bullying me. Um, we'll, we'll just give back, 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 back as good as we get. Um, you know. I don't know. I, don't know. I, I, I think Dara does bully me, to be honest. I think that is what happens. That's the real thing. I mean, the real thing is basically I get to fat shame you endlessly. Uh, <laughs> Meet me on the next Twitter space, Dara. I'd say that. Yeah. <laughs> um, look, I, I, I think it was what was interesting was it was very clear that Doug was very hurt by Galfon's piece actually he he did take to a twitter space pretty quickly and he called him a liar 
And you mentioned there how there can be a conflation of criticism and, and bullying. I completely agree. And I actually do think if I'm going to be critical of Galfon's excellent piece, um, I do think he did that. I, I think he did conflate um, criticism for bullying in some situations. And I also think he sort of acted as if Doug was the prime mover on everything. Like it started with him as opposed to maybe starting with whatever Doug was reacting to, which I think, you know, has to be brought into the conversation. If we're looking at each of the things as he wanted to look at each of the things, the way he structured his piece, um, who knows? They're two very big characters in poker. And I do feel like that might be the new feud. That might take a long time to quell. And there might be a lot of hurt feelings over that. I, I know they did have a cordial relationship, um, you know, maybe a little prickly because they're obviously run rival training sites. But I obviously always got the impression that it was very cordial. Um, obviously, Galfond was the arbitrator in the in the match between Doug and Daniel. So, yeah, yeah, hopefully they figured that out. Um, we've actually booked uh, Phil Galfon for a future show. I think it's going to be in about two weeks' time. So looking forward to obviously getting more from the horse's mouth when we do that. And uh, yeah, I suppose with that, we can can bring this one sort of to a close. I've got a couple of notes here about uh, what's coming up. Uh, Unibetter sponsoring the um, festival series here in Malta this coming weekend. It's an eight-day festival run by Frankie von Sveiberg. Everybody knows Frankie. He's been a guest on this show and a guest on the other show as well. And uh, yeah, obviously one of the great characters in poker and he he, he does manage to, um, you know, bring successful festivals to every venue he goes. And uh, I'm looking forward very much to, to playing that one this week. Dara, I know you're not going to make it here to Malta for that one, but I know you've obviously been a, a big supporter of Frankie and what he's been doing in the past. Can you speak to his enthusiasm? Because he'd yeah, like you, I'm sure. Yeah, Frankie just has, enthusiasm is the right word. And actually I, I have a, a a forthcoming piece on Vegas Slots Online about another enthusiast on the Irish team, Fintan Gavin. I think Fintan and, and Frankie are very similar characters. They absolutely love very what they're similar. doing. They love running great events. They, they they really pour their heart and soul into it. And everything I wrote about Fintan in the piece could also be said of Frankie. Um, he's just an amazing guy. Is, is that what you're going to, you're just going to cut and paste, just change the name? Yeah, about a year time, I'll do a, I'll do a peon to, uh, to Frankie, which will, which will just literally be just word for word, but with just do a replace of Fintan with Frankie. <laughs> I feel you, man. I also like you get paid by the word. So, you know, you know, we got to do what we got to do. Um, it remains for me to thank our very special guest, Barry Carter. Barry, hoping that book comes out today and we can maybe show it magically on the screen now if uh, Sharon, yeah. uh, both our editor and your book designer can do some magic right now. If she hasn't been able to do that, just watch my hands move around for a few <laughs> seconds with nothing happening. It looks like that. If, uh... <laughs> <laughs> I grabbed the first book off my shelf that I could. Yeah. Stalin was a man who loved a mystery bounty. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah so, well, unfortunately, it was like five years in the gulag or. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. 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 Thank you, David. Yes. Okay. Well, on that rather uncomfortable note, uh, it's been great. Thanks so much, guys. Yeah. Thank you, guys. And. Uh, Remember, everybody, like and subscribe. That's very important to us. Even the Americans that Barry tried to bully there mid, mid, uh, mid course. Don't hold that against us. That, that, that's all, Barry. Yeah, and and anyone who's against bullying, you can like and subscribe too. There will be no more uh, pro bullying content. If he, re- if he really wants to, Ronnie O'Sullivan can like and subscribe as well. So <laughs> go on. <laughs> Take care, guys. Goodbye. <laughs>